What's good, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of The Page Turners. It's your host, Elgin Bailey, back with another episode. Each season, a text is selected to read. Each episode, we will discuss, unpack, critique, call out, and apply to our lives with the intent of changing the current state of predominantly black schools, black neighborhoods, black lives, black lives, black lives. Thank you all for stopping through again, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate all of the love uh, that you guys have shown me and this podcast, this platform. Uh, The Page Turners is not just a podcast. It's a way of life. Uh, It is a movement. We are building some things over here with the intent of liberating people through pages, using books and pages as tools for liberation. We are on episode three, man. Season three, back at it, talking about Evicted by Matthew Desmond, uh, subtitled Poverty and Profit in the American City. This is an award-winning New York Times bestseller book, uh, winner of the Pulitzer Surprise, Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize, jeez, why do I want to say Pulitzer Surprise, like, <laughs> did they jump out of cake and say, hey, Pulitzer, I don't know, but we are in chapter 8, Christmas in Room 400, chapter 8. Christmas in room 400. Let's dig in, man. Oh, I'm sorry, because I don't want any of the listeners to end up <laughs> sending me hateful email because <laughs> I didn't share my cash app. Fascinating. My cash app is dollar sign Elgin Bailey. Dollar sign E-L-G-I-N-B-A-I-L-E-Y. Let's dig in. Chapter 8, titled Christmas in Room 400. And we read, A commissioner appeared from a side doorway and took a file from a caller. Sharina tapped her foot, waiting for her turn. At the beginning of the month, she had been in court for eight eviction cases, including Patrice's. Only one tenant made it, Ricky Oneleg. He limped up to Sharina in the hallway and complained. Why you drag me down here? Ricky had a high-pitched, sandpaper voice, beer on his breath, and a wooden leg he received after being shot four times on his 22nd birthday. What? You want me to punch you in your other leg? Sharina shot back. She raised her fist, and Ricky pretended to stab her foot with his cane. After they finished laughing, Sharina said, I love you, Ricky. I love you too, baby. You know this is just a formality. You know you can't go to the grocery store and say, well, I'm going to take that food and ain't paying you shit. I know, baby. If I had a business, I would feel the same way. My daddy always told me, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. When it was time, Sharina and Ricky approached the front bench. Since cases were grouped by plaintiffs, landlords, a caller made sure Sharina's other tenants weren't there. Sissel Clement, stamp, 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 
Patrice Hickson, stamp, stamp, stamp. Patrice had gone to work at Cousin Subs instead of going to court. She couldn't find anyone who would swap her hours. She didn't want to lose this job. Her manager had looked past her Class A misdemeanor, writing bad checks. The only thing she liked about working at Cousins was her commute, a peaceful hour-long bus ride through streets lined with brick houses and mounted American flags. F her and F that court, Patrice later said. My mom has been like through an eviction before, (laughs) and the judge that she had was rude. Patrice would begin her rental career with an eviction record. She didn't give that much thought. Everybody I knew, except for my white friends, I swear they got an eviction on their record. Patrice knew that if she could come to court, she not only would lose work hours and frustrate her manager, but she also would have to defend herself against someone who was more educated, more familiar with the law, and more comfortable in court. Other tenants had it worse, having to go toe-to-toe with their landlord's lawyers. That's fascinating, ain't it? Fascinating and and yet depressing at the same time. Sipping some coffee. Fascinating and depressing at the same time. A sticky situation where it was just ugly and unfair... But on top of that, she couldn't afford to go to court to fight against what she was dealing with and what she was up against, because if she did, it was a possibility, a strong possibility, that she would lose her job. Why? Because her employer was, (laughs) I guess we're going to paint him as a nice guy, was willing to work with her based off of her having... Uh, a criminal record. Excuse me. But we don't want to make it seem like this lawyer or this <laughs> business owner was, you know, uh, this super guy. He might well be. She might well be. But the point is, Patrice was in such a dire situation that she would literally accept the consequences of having an eviction on her record instead of losing her job. Why? Because everybody around her had an eviction on their record except who? Her white friends. And it was it is not just simply because of whiteness that prevents white people from being in this situation because we know there are tons of white people who face eviction. But the difference tends to be is when we look at the wealth dynamic, black people are overwhelmingly at the bottom of every financial statistic. So it's not just, don't don't look at it just as saying Patrice believes that white people have some sort of uh, innate privilege that keeps them away from these situations because that's just not true. That's that's not true at all. Okay. Plus, Patrice would have to set foot in the grand old courthouse. The nicest building in Patrice's life was Lena's Food Market off of Food Dula Ack (laughs) Avenue. 
in a shopping cart's bright fluorescent lights and a buff linoleum floor. Her white friends called it the ghetto grocery store, but it was one of the better markets on the north side. At Lena's, Patrice never felt her existence questioned. She tried not to go to parts of the city where she did. Patrice lived four miles away from the shore of Lake Michigan, an hour on foot, a half hour by bus, 15 minutes by car. She had never been. Sharina, somebody whispered. Sharina turned around and saw that Arlene had perked her head into room 400. Oh, this is going to be something. Sharina stepped into the hallway and walked up to Arlene, who was tucking her face underneath a red hoodie. Girl, Sharina said, I got to get you up out of this house to get my money. Genuine, I mean, because I got bills. I got a bill to show you right now that's going to take your eyes out your head. Sharina reached into her files, handed Arlene a tax bill for a property that the city had condemned. It listed delinquent stormwater and sewer charges, fees for the board up, and additional charges that totaled almost $12,000. Arlene stared blankly at the bill. It was more than her annual income. It was more than her annual income. More than her annual income. $12,000. And we read, Sharina cocked her head and asked, Do you see what I have to go through? It might not have been your fault about what happened, but she pinched the bill between pointer and thumb and gave it a wiggle. I got issues. Sharina reclaimed her seat in room 400. She remembered her first eviction, nervous and confused. She had gone over the paperwork a dozen times. Everything went her way. Soon after, she filed another eviction, then another. When filling out the court papers, Sharina learned to put et al. at their tenant's name so that the eviction judgment covered everyone in the house, even people she didn't know about. She learned that the correct answer on the documents asking her estimate damages was not over 5000 The maximum amount allowed learned that commissioners frowned on late fees in excess of $55. Learned that dragging slow-paying tenants to court was usually worth the $89.50 processing fee because it spurned many to find a way to catch up. Plus, she could add the processing fee to their bill. Lord have mercy. This wasn't Arlene's first eviction either. That had happened 16 years earlier when she was 22. Arlene figured she had rented 20 houses since turning 18. Hold on. Time out. Let's read that one more time because that's wild. This wasn't Arlene's first eviction either. That had happened 16 years earlier when she was 22. Arlene figured she had rented 20 homes since turning 18? Damn. Which meant she and her children had moved about once a year, multiple times because they were evicted. But but Arlene's eviction record was not as extensive as it should have been. Through the years, she had been given landlords different names, nothing exotic, just subtle alterations. Now Arlene Bill and Erlene Bell had eviction records. 
The frazzled court clerks, like many landlords, never stopped to ask for identification. Arlene remembered when they used to take a break from doing evictions around Christmas time in Milwaukee, but they did away with that in 1991 after a landlord convinced the American Civil Liberties Union to argue that the practice was an unfair religious celebration. Some old-timers still observed the moratorium out of kindness or habit or ignorance. Sharina was not one of them. More time passed. The lawyers had gone home. The cases were called first, leaving only the bailiff and the callers up front. With no one to talk to, the bailiff, a white woman with a compact frame and overbite, began passing the time by snipping at tenants. Silence your cell phone or it'll be confiscated. Both callers had stopped covering their yawns an hour ago. You have to clear the hallway, the bailiff announced. Children's shoes tap the pews. If you're going to talk, discuss your case outside, the bailiff said. Finally, Arlene looked up to see Sharina step into the hallway and hold the courtroom door open. We up, she said. Sharina had waited two hours for her cases to be called. She had drawn Commissioner Laura Grambling Perez, a white woman with a military posture, but a broad, open face. Grambling Perez, in a dark pantsuit and pearls, asked Arlene to wait in front while she and Sharina settled another matter. Sharina followed the commissioner back to her office. A stately wood-paneled room, lined with law books, framed certificates, and family photos. The commissioner took her seat at the head of the large hardwood table and asked, Any luck with that invoice? Sharina had been in the office just the day before, asking the commissioner to approve a claim of $5,000 brought against another evicted tenant, the one whose building had been condemned. Each eviction case had two parts. The first cause of action dealt strictly with whether a tenant would be evicted. Next came the second and third causes of action, which dealt with what was owed to the landlord, unpaid rent, court fees, and other damages. Most tenants taken to eviction court were sued once, twice, once for property and a second time for the debt, and so had two court dates. Damn. Not only do you get taken to court for the, the eviction, but then you get taken to court for the... Damn. Goodness gracious, how in the hell... So one part is what you owe the landlord. Then the second part is unpaid rent, court fees, and other damages. <sighs> Lord. But even fewer tenants showed up for their second hearing than for their first, which meant landlords' claims about what was owed them usually went unchallenged. Shit. Excuse me. Suing a tenant for back rent and court fees was straightforward. Landlords were allowed to charge for unpaid rent, late fees, court found reasonable, and double rent for each day tenants remained in the house after their tendency had been evicted. Double rent. Things got murkier when tallying up property damages. Sometimes Sharina guessed an amount on the ride over to the eviction court. Uh, how much should I put for the back door? 150 200 Sometimes she added an extermination fee, even though Quentin would take care of it himself. 
When the charges didn't give them pause, callers approved landlords' second and third causes with quick punch of the stamp. When they did, callers pushed the claim up to the commissioner, like Grambling Perez, who was now asking Sharina to provide evidence that would justify suing an ex-tenant for the maximum amount court allowed in small claims court. What I'm trying to get from her doesn't even scratch the surface of what she did to the property, Sharina replied, presenting photos of the trash unit and the bill she had shown to Arlene. Commissioner Grambling Perez looked everything over then said, I need something else. Commissioner Grambling looked over everything again and said, I need something else. And I want to emphasize that because she's not just simply accepting what Sharina has given her. She's trying to do her due diligence here. Sharina pushed back but got nowhere. I'll never get that anyway, Sharina finally said with a huff. And that's probably the case, the commissioner began. So, it's still not fair. Nobody ever does anything to these tenants. It's always the landlord. This system is flawed. But or whatever, I'll never see the money. These people are deadbeats. Wowzer. It's not fair. Nobody ever does anything to these tenants. It's always the landlords. The system is flawed. Ain't that some shit? <laughs> Excuse me while I sip my coffee and meditate on that bullshit that I just heard just now because that's fascinating. Nobody ever does anything to the tenants. Huh. I guess eviction is nothing. Well, okay. Gremlin Perez bought Sharina's charges from $5,000 down to $1,200. That money judgment joined those of the eight other eviction cases Sharina initiated earlier that month, which together totaled over $10,000. Sharina knew that receiving a money judgment and actually receiving the money were different matters. After withholding the tenant's security deposits, landlords had limited recourse when it came to collecting. Sharina could try to garnish wages, but this was possible only for former tenants who were employed and living above the poverty line. Good. She could garnish bank accounts, but many of her former tenants did not have bank accounts, and even if they did, state benefits in the first $1,000 were off limits. Good. Even so, Sharina and many other landlords filed for second and third causes. This carried consequences for tenants, since money judgments were listed on eviction records. Damn. An eviction record listing 200 of rental debt left a different impression than one listing $2,000. Money judgments can also suddenly reappear in tenants' lives several years after the eviction, particularly if landlords docketed them. Docketing a judgment slapped it on a tenant's credit report. Now, this is where this shit gets wild. Now, I was wondering when it was going to give me information on how this shit actually shows up on people's credit reports. Now, I'm going to take my time with this, so this might take a few minutes. And we read... Docketing a judgment slapped it on a tenant's credit report 
If the tenant came to own any property in Milwaukee County in the next decade, the docketed judgment placed a lien on that property, severely limiting a new homeowner's ability to refinance or sell. To landlords, docketing a judgment was a long odds bet on a tenant's future. Who knows? Maybe somewhere down the line, a tenant will want to get her credit in order and would approach her old landlord asking to repay the debt. Debt with interest, the landlord could respond, since money judgments accrued interest at an annual rate that would be the envy of any financial portfolio, 12%. For the chronically and desperately poor whose credit was already wrecked, a docketed judgment was just another shove deeper into the pit. See, I was wondering, and it's part of this that I, I really h- hope I get a chance to have a conversation with uh, with Mr. Desmond one day, because I want to know, I know that oftentimes uh, property managers and credit, pl- uh, property managers and landlords will do a credit check. And on that credit check, I'm always curious of what they're looking for. Uh, I know that they don't, I don't think they have to do a credit check for an eviction to find out an eviction. Is there other ways? And these are questions that I'm writing down that I'll be answering in future episodes. But it's just fascinating that it gets docketed, basically put off to the side for a later time. But if you are the the tenant and you get your life together and you're able to actually buy a home and get all these things taken care of, you won't be able to refinance or sell based off of previous misfortunes. You're talking about being handcuffed to fucking poverty forever. Jeez. Mm-mm-mm. And we read... But for the tenant who went on to land a decent job or marry and then take another tentative step forward, applying for student loans or purchasing a first home for that tenant is a real barrier on the already difficult road to self-reliance and security. Sharina had been thinking about hiring a company like Rent Recovery Service to collect on her second and third causes. The self-described largest and most aggressive landlord collection agency in the country reported delinquent tenants to three national credit bureaus and placed them on a nationwide tracking system that allowed the company to follow tenants' financial lives without their knowledge. Oh, no, I got to write this shit down because this is crazy. Oh, no, we might have to do a whole damn episode on rent recovery services because that's too much information right there not to examine further let me I gotta read this again man for y'all and we're gonna end here by the way uh, after this particular section because I want to research this more uh this is fascinating okay damn this is about to get crazy as shit 
Sharina, the landlord, had been thinking about hiring a company like Rent Recovery Service to collect on her third, her second and third causes. The self-described largest and most aggressive landlord collection agency in the country reported delinquent tenants to three national credit bureaus and placed them on a nationwide tracking system that allowed the company to follow tenants' financial lives without their knowledge. It saw when tenants attempted to get credit applied for a job or open a bank account. Damn. Like landlords docketing judgments, the company took the long view, waiting for tenants to get back on their financial feet and begin to earn a living before collection could begin. Rent recovery service never closed an unpaid file. Some of those files contain debt amounts calculated in a reasonable and well-documented way. Others contain bloated second and third causes and unreasonably high interest rates. But since both had the court's approval, Rent Recovery Service did not distinguish between them. Ain't that some shit? Man, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh... Next episode, episode four, we're going to spend some time unpacking and digging into rent recovery services because this is just insane. So the self-described largest and most aggressive landlord collection agency in the country reported delinquent tenants to three national credit bureaus and placed on Place them on a nationwide tracking system that allowed the company to... F- oh, man. What in the hell? What in the hell is that, man? What in the hell is that? Wow. Rent recovery services. I'm just blown away, man. I'm blown away by how nefarious and and downright evil this system is. And how some of this information, most of this information, is not common knowledge. But, man, thank you for tuning in to Page Turners with me, Elgin Bailey. May the pages you read assist in creating the change we need. Until next time, we out.